When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is Joey Casada, and you're listening to Jay Scott on the Hook Rocks. Trust me, he's a beautiful man. happening it's jay scott welcome back to the hook rocks the ultimate rock community podcast thanks for tuning in once again appreciate you stopping by appreciate you listening thanks for all the positive feedback from the latest episodes we've done we've had some uh, great stuff happening so thank you very much for that as i always mentioned we're part of the pantheon podcast network the great network of music related podcasts you can catch my friends, as I always mention, on that platform, such as Mistress Carrie, the legendary DJ out in Boston, Martin Popoff, the rock historian, Chris and Aaron on Decibel Geek, Tom and Zeus on the Shout Out Loudcast. We just had Zeus on doing the White Snake Legacy Show, so check that out, as well as Mac from the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast. Great podcast, too, as uh, as well. Don't forget to follow them on all social media platforms at Pantheon Pods on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, as well as their website, PantheonPodcast.com. Don't forget to follow the Hook Rocks wherever you podcast and set your app to automatic download so you get the latest episodes right to your phone whenever they drop. And also, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We always appreciate new followers and new feedback and always talking music on any platform that you choose. Like I said, we've had some great episodes. I just mentioned the White Snake Legacy Show with Zeus from Shout Out Loudcast. Great uh, to talk about a band that really does have an extensive history that is widely unknown for listeners in the U.S. And we get into it and talk about it in this episode. So check that out. We had the music insider, the great Christine Eagle, uh, one of my favorite guests on the show. We talked about the Facebook algorithm and the ever-changing algorithm that bands have to keep up with, the future of NAM and what that will bring, and also 
the court ruling on the streaming service revenue payouts, which I'm sure you'll find interesting, plus a lot more on that. Christy always brings it every time she comes on. She's very well researched. She knows her stuff. And if you're a new band and you're listening, she's a great resource to map out what you need to do in terms of the business side of running a band and all that goes into it. She's phenomenal. So if she can't get you the answer, she'll find someone that can. So please reach out to her. Use her as a resource. As, of course, we always promote new bands. We've had some fantastic new music spotlights, too, as well, with Broken Love, with The Warning, with Frame 42, and Clay Dieters from The Issue. So check out all those four. And our latest episode, Joey Casada returns to talk about my favorite, one of my favorite music books called Start With a Dream. And it's about his life growing up in New York, getting connected with music and the relationship music he had with music along with his friends and basically what it was to grow up during that time. And if you're a music fan that grew up in the late 70s, the 80s into the early 90s, you will appreciate this story, this book, because it it really does hit home and brings you back to when time was a little simpler, a little slower, and how you gathered information and how you bonded with your buddies on bikes, riding to the record store, riding to go get a fast food burger, wherever it was. So check out Blaze episode with Joey Casada. He's always a great guest, great guy, one of the true gents in rock and roll. And without further ado, we'd like to welcome in Rob, and it's the at the Recivitus on Twitter. Rob, as you know, is our quarterly guest as we do our live album reviews. We've done some great albums. These these episodes get great feedback, and the listeners love them. We started off with, back, gosh, back in this time last year, I believe. It was around July or June of 2021. Our first album we did was Thin Lizzy, Live and Dangerous. And then we did a special fall episode right before Halloween with the great 80s live album, Iron Maiden, Live After Death. We then followed that up with the probably the, the, the reason why there were so many live albums in the 70s, and that's Humble Pie, Rockin' the Fillmore. Our last one we did was Kiss Alive. And the next album that we're going to talk about today is regarded as one of the best, if not the best, live albums in the 70s. We did Thin Lizzy Live and Dangerous. We did Kiss Alive. Depending on who you talk to, those two are are spoken about a lot when you rank them in the 70s about which band had the live album. But one thing is common with all three albums that we've talked to that have been released in the 70s is the fact that the energy of the band explodes on these records. And for for, for the most part, it was never able to be captured in a in a studio album. But you have these live albums that really give you the energy of the band and really what they were all about. Thin Lizzy, Kiss, and now UFO. We're talking Strangers in the Night, the great live album of the 70s with the Recividus. What's going on, Rob? Hey, Jay. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good, man. Thanks for doing this again. I always enjoy these conversations. Uh, it's fun picking out these albums whenever we decide to do them once a quarter. And I like the what we did this past time or for this album. We ran a poll with uh, with four albums. We did Strangers in the Night. We did, I think, Live at Leeds by The Who. We did Unleashed in the East by Priest. And Live at Hammersmith. 
um, by Motorhead and Strangers of the Night was the clear winner. So we'll continue to do that and find out what people want to talk about. I want to hear us talk about, but yeah, this is a great album. And this is one that is probably on the upper echelon of all time. Great live albums. Yeah. Those are four great albums that you chose to put in that uh, poll. I'm glad that this one got picked uh, because before we started doing this, um, we had done that episode where we talked about our top five live, live albums and um, we both had Strangers in the Night in our top five live albums. Um, and so I got really excited to talk about this one. You're, you're, you're not kidding about this one being revered. Um, I, I have a very specific memory from the 80s. I was subscribing to Guitar for the Practicing Musician. And they had an issue of the magazine that had interviewed like probably 20 different guitarists, uh, rock and roll guitarists. Um, and asked them what were the most important albums to them, what were the most, um, what played the most significant role in forming them as players. And a number of them pointed to Strangers in the Night, Michael Shanker's playing. Um, I, I specifically remember, um, Kirk Hammett from Metallica had this on his list. I'm pretty sure that Chris DeGarmo and Michael Wilton of Queensryche both pointed to it as well. So yeah, the impact of, of this album is significant. It really is. And that's great that you mentioned that because. UFO is a very underappreciated band. It's a very underrated band that had some success here in the U.S. And obviously this live album is regarded as their, you know, people, if you, if you ask a UFO fan what album to start with, nine out of 10 are going to stay this album. And of course, there's some great studio albums too as well that they have, but this really is the pinnacle of their career and their discography. Um, some of the show was recorded in Chicago, so it kind of has a personal connection to me. And UFO, for that matter, was huge in Chicago. Back then, back in the late 70s, bands were, were had different circuits. And it was very regionalized with radio and, you know, with, with concert halls. And a band that may not do well on the East Coast may do well on the West Coast or in the Midwest, vice versa, how it worked. And because of that... You had radio stations really pushing these bands when they would come through. And the ones that really resonated with their audience would get pushed a lot. So Chicago was one of those audiences that really pushed UFO and really had a connection with UFO and was one of the reasons why they were so popular, especially in the Midwest. Now, I can't speak for the West Coast or the East Coast because I didn't grow up there or I didn't understand that or, or experience that, I should say. But... I know because of neighbors who were older than me growing up, they had UFO shirts. They were always listening to UFO. So, you know, UFO had a big connection here in Chicago. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I actually was, was wondering about that, how much it was, um, how much UFO had exposure in, in your market. Because I grew up in the Denver area. I had family in Tennessee, and so I spent a lot of time there as well. And I don't really remember UFO getting much exposure. I was listening to. Now, it's possible it was there and I just missed it. And it wasn't until I started seeing guitar players citing to this album that I really thought maybe I should investigate UFO because I don't remember ever hearing a UFO song on the Denver radio stations, even though there were some good hard rock uh, and album oriented stations. I don't remember this, this, this material ever showing up. And so when I found out about it, which was in the early to mid 80s and started investigating the catalog, I thought, man, I was really missing out. And I'm really sad that they didn't have more of this out there. I know they were probably bigger in other areas, but I feel like um, they should have been a nationwide phenomenon, a worldwide phenomenon. I know they probably got more exposure in, in England than they did in the United States. But I remember listening to them in here in Chicago. And 
having them always in rotation on the radio stations that I would listen to. So they always had an impact. And of course, Michael Schenker was regarded as one of the, the great guitar players of all time, a guitar god. Uh, you could talk to Kirk Hammett, especially, you know, heavily influenced him. He was known as a great guitar player prior to this, but I think this definitely elevated him into another level. Uh, with fans, with guitar players, because like I said in the beginning, the studio albums that they had were great. However, this album, like Kiss Alive, like Live and Dangerous, and like so many other albums in the 70s, elevated that energy, really exposed that energy to fans. And it, it was just absolutely phenomenal, you know, with, with the energy. I mean, you and I were talking before we we started doing this episode and how we both revisited this album prior to recording it. And again, like you always live albums kind of have that for me, at least that, that unfortunate category of you listen to it, you love it. And then you, you don't listen to it for a while for whatever reason, but whenever you do, go months or years without listening to a particular live album and then you put it in it's always like wow this is so great this is so awesome this why don't i listen to this more i don't know the reason why but uh it's definitely something that i need to change maybe it'll be an upcoming new year's resolution for 2023 (laughs) that's a great one you can um if i can suggest it spend every sunday morning listening to a live album in its entirety (laughs) that's actually you know live live sundays or sundays live at the rocks or something like that it's what i look forward to every week um (laughs) but you're you're right i think that um well i think that these days especially one of the reasons that maybe you don't revisit some of your favorite stuff more often is just because of the sheer volume of of great music that's been going out. And I, I struggle to stay on top of things that I want to listen to. Um, and sometimes those old favorites get um, left set gathering dust for a little while. Um, but uh, yeah, going back to what you were saying about the energy of, of the album, um, I was doing a little reading about the album in preparation for this. And uh, I saw that this is obviously just before Michael Schenker left the band. And I saw some sort of an anecdotal uh, reference that he refused to do any overdubs afterwards for the record. And as a result, you probably get a liver, more live experience from his playing than you might have otherwise if they polish it up more. And I really liked that. There's at least one point where I hear him slightly misfret something. And I love that because I'm like, oh, he's human. And this person that's playing this fabulous thing can occasionally make a mistake too, but that's part of the experience. And it just gets me into the the whole live concept. That's something that's been lost recently too in music, especially rock music, is the enjoyment of the experience and the the understanding that it's not going to be perfect like the album. Yeah, you know, yeah. a lot of young fans who are coming up expect to hear it verbatim sound the same. And that really isn't what the live experience is about. It's never been about. It's about those mistakes. It's about the energy. It's about the synergy with the crowd. You know, there's nothing better when you go see a live show, when the crowd has met the band with an energy level that makes the band even perform even better, creating that synergy and hearing the mistakes maybe playing a little too fast in certain parts or maybe forgetting, you know, a a part here. That's great. That's the beauty of it. Right. Uh, And I just think that today, 
with the backing tracks and the lip syncing. You know, I don't know why people want that. I mean, if you if you want lip syncing and backing tracks, stay home and listen to the album. There's nothing wrong with that. But yeah. I want to hear oh, that yeah. pure, organic, authentic live sound. And uh, I appreciate when new bands are doing that and carrying on that torch. It's very important. Me too. I would, I've seen there's there's one really good new live album that came out in the last couple of weeks. Um, that it made me so happy to see a current band putting out a live album. It was clearly recorded in a very small club setting, but even that you can, you can sense the energy and the interaction. Um, and, and that's something you, and, and the improvisation that comes with a live experience. Um, I mean, that's the genius of humanity and music as opposed to spitting it out digitally and, and having everything be absolutely perfect. It's much better for me this way. So released in 1979, January 1979, the album, like I said, was recorded in Chicago or part of it in Chicago at the International Amphitheater, as well as the Louisville Gardens in Louisville, Kentucky. Again, continuing the the theme in the 70s of great live albums, this was released in the last year of the 70s and again captures the moment, captures the energy, the essence of UFO. I can't say enough about it. Like you said, it's it's really is a pure... Um, pure live album. The album starts out with Natural Thing, which uh, is one of my favorite tunes. I, I absolutely love it. And uh, that was the first track on the original LP. Yeah, we, we were talking about before we started that this album actually has at least four different major iterations. You have the original release that you're talking about, which is my the first cassette that I had of this album was the original release. And then in 98, I believe, they did a reissue, um, which they added one track and reordered the songs. I read something that said they were trying to more accurately reflect the average set list that they had at the time. And they had like a 2008 remaster of the album. And then in 2020, there was a, a eight-disc version that was released from, it had the original two LPs plus six different whole concerts from that same time frame. I'm, I'm, I'm telling myself I need to get that. My wallet tells me I don't need to get that, but I'm telling myself I need to get that. Yeah. So the problem with a vinyl and music collector is uh, the wallet has to remind us sometimes that eh, it's not the right time to buy yeah. this. You got to wait. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the, the natural thing is, um, you know, I've always thought the lyrics were a little odd. There, when I was younger, I'd listen to them. Man, what are they talking about? I mean, because it sure sounds like innuendo. Then they've got the the whole uh, film mod going. I didn't even like it. I'm like, what are you talking about, man? Um, but uh, the thing about this song and a number of songs throughout the course of the recording is, I really learned to appreciate um, how much uh, effort paul raymond is going through because he's, he's switching back between keyboards and guitars you have michael shanker who's in the right channel doing all the guitar stuff but raymond is 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 in mid-song switching back and forth between the two different instruments uh, man you are a number one a great human being for letting the lead flashy guy take all the ego gratifying things and you're doing all the support work and you don't hear complaints or anything about it, but he is making the song, like bringing it all together. I think that's really cool. What's interesting about this album as well is, and, and I don't know if a lot of people know this, that 
maybe you're just a casual UFO fan. I'm sure the hardcore fans do. But during this tour, Michael Schenker ended up leaving the band. He was replaced by Paul Chapman, the ex-Lone Star guitarist. Um, it had been rumored that Schenker refused to record any overdubs for the album, like you mentioned, uh, which would make this an accurate account of his live guitar work. Uh, when, when he discussed this album, Schenker s- spoken about the disappointment with the chosen track, saying there was better takes they could have used. I'm glad they stick with ones that they, they used because it just... Um... It's, it's much more organic to me that way. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Shanker is very outspoken, has his opinions on a lot of things. Um, this, you know, is, is certainly one of them. But, you know, it, it's ironic that probably the biggest album that they've ever had is a, about a tour um, with one of the great guitar players, is from a tour with one of the great guitar players, then ended up leaving the band midway yeah. through the tour. yeah. I also think it's really cool the way the the, nat- the natural thing without break segues straight into Out in the Street, which is off of a, a completely different studio album because um, Natural Thing was off No he- Heavy Petting and Out in the Street was off Force It, but they play it so seamlessly that you almost think that it's a natural double song combination. And um, I think that they, they worked that out really well. This album ended up charting number 42 in the U.S. and number seven in the U.K. Critics and fans have always suggested or marked this as one of the greatest live rock albums of all time. So kind of what we discussed before we're, you know, before diving into this album. Concurring Magazine listed this album as number 47 among the 100 greatest heavy metal albums of all time. And Slash, like many guitar players, stated that this is his favorite live album founding UFO member, Pete way and Andy Parker both say it is their favorite album as well. Moving on to the track list, they go into, like you said, out in the street and then I'll, and then only you can rock me, which is one of their more popular songs, certainly. And again, that was one that's got frequent plays on radio. Uh, It's got a great hook. It's a great rock and roll tune. Yeah, um, the uh, they actually had a uh, there was an EP that had uh, only you can rock me with with cherry and rock bottom on it. You know, you could actually go. They've done a pretty good job of if you buy the re-releases of the CDs of the five albums that have Shanker in the band. Most of them have a couple of bonus tracks that are live recordings as well. And so you can almost go through those five albums and put together a whole nother live album. Some of them are the same songs here, but you can hear some of the variations and get, get a sense of the dynamics of, of the band. Absolutely. I've got a box set myself with a bunch of all their recordings, or I think all their albums released. Gosh, I think up until like 83 or 84. So I think there's probably about seven or eight albums in uh, in the box set that I have. You know, one of the things I really enjoy about UFO songs is they had a real knack for either doing an intro in one key and then the main verse would shift into a different key for a different like real mood feel or they would change key for the solo, but they always had like, some shift in the song that would 
keep the listener interested. And if there's one part of the song where you're like, okay, this feels kind of light, and then all of a sudden it comes in and just hits you with a really heavy lead guitar um, and pulls you back in the song. And there's a, there's a really good example in this that we'll get to um, that I, I think of how it impacts me. But I think that they were really accomplished at um, maintaining listener interest through uh, key shifts. That's interesting you say that because that is something that not a lot of people would pick up on unless you know you know music or you've played music. But you're right. I mean, it's it's each song with UFO really takes on a life of itself. They have a very unique style, different style than a lot of bands that were their contemporaries in the 70s and into the 80s. I mean, the only closest one that you could probably say is the Scorpions. And of course, there's that Shanker connection there too as right. well. But UFO really, with this style of, of, of music, was kind of the trendsetter, was kind of the, you know, the leading the frontier of this style of rock music. Right. And then um, I'm actually, because I'm looking at that, because I listened to the 98 uh, reissue, I'm actually not entirely certain if my song order is a little different at this point from yours. So I don't know. The next song after um, Only You Can Rock Me, on the one I listened to is Mother Mary. Was it like that on the original? Because I don't recall. No, the original has Dr. Doctor. Mother okay. Mary is the okay. first song on side two. But okay. you know, Dr. Doctor, again, um, another song that just really comes to life when they play it live. For Iron Maiden fans, they know this song as the band's intro, probably for the last 10 plus years for Iron Maiden, probably longer than that, uh, gets the crowd going. And of course, Iron Maiden has spoken about the influence that UFO has had on the band. And there are parts in this album that I'm going to get to eventually here with in the next few songs that hearing these songs live and the renditions they do man, you really hear why and how Iron Maiden was influenced by them. Almost to the point where you're like, oh, wow, this sounds like Iron Maiden. And you've got to like say, no, Iron, Ma- Iron Maiden sounds like UFO. It's very, um, I'll, I'll, I'll talk, when we get to the song, I will, I will break it down. But you, you, Iron Maiden wears their UFO influence on their sleeves. And, and there's probably... There's a few other bands. I mean, we talked about the influence that Lizzie had on Iron Maiden, right. but more so with with UFO. I, you listen to Maiden's music after listening to this album, especially, and man, I mean, that is that is a bridge that is alive and well and exists to this day. Yeah, the uh, the liner notes for the uh, 2008 uh, remaster included a uh, um, a few paragraphs from Steve Harris. Uh, talking about how important the album was. <clears throat> and um, and he says, UFO should have been bigger, much, much bigger. There are a million and one reasons why that didn't happen, but music isn't one of them. And he, he goes on to, to speak about how important um, the their music was to him. So you're absolutely right about the Iron Maiden uh, influence from this. Dr. Doctor is a great track, a great song. It gets better with age. It doesn't. It doesn't age at all. But it gets better as I've gotten older and I've learned to appreciate the song. Uh, it's and then hearing when you go to an Iron Maiden show and hearing fans appreciate and get into it and put their fists in the air and sing along to a song that's not an Iron Maiden song, but they're gearing up for the show. Yeah, is is just a, a remarkable moment for anyone who's had to experience that. 
Yeah, the, the song, uh, the live version of the song has like that kind of cool, dreamy intro to it. And then it suddenly punches you in the gut with the full force of the song. It's really cool. It's not just the tone and, and, the, and the style of music or the way they play the music, I should say. But it's also like with the arrangements. I mean, when yeah. you hear an Iron Maiden song similar to UFO, each song takes on a life of their own. And that is probably the biggest influence UFO has had on Maiden is in the arrangement. Now, you can also talk about, you know, with the guitar work and how the songs are played and the tone of the songs and some of that galloping comes from a lot of UFO tunes. There is not another band that is that shows their influence the most for UFO than Iron Maiden, certainly. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. So moving on to side two, we go into Mother Mary, which is the song that you were going to mention here that's kind of different on the reissues. But on the original track listing, this was the first song on side two. And for folks that are listening that don't understand you know, the side one, side two, there's four sides to this album. This is when albums came out on vinyl where because of the, because if you put too many songs on one side, it would affect the quality and the sound of the vinyl. So that's why they broke it up with only certain amount of minutes for, for one side to have. And that's why you had, you know, double albums or, you know, like this, because it wasn't, because of the, you know, it's just because it was a double album we got to release it. It was driven more because of, like I said, the quality of the sound for for the vinyl. Yeah, and uh, you're, you're right. And, and the, you know, this I don't want to venture into Skylab turf here. I'm sure he could tell us all about uh, the the how much you can fit onto a record and why certain records are at certain speeds and 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 how you can have 12 inches records that are at 45 RPMs. That's his expertise. I don't know about that, but you're right. The uh, you don't want to cram in too much on, on one side. Um, Mother Mary was off the album Forset, which my understanding is that Forset was, you, you know, they, they they had a tendency to have the hypnosis covers for the Michael Shanker era albums. And uh, Forset had that, um, has that picture of, of a couple in a bathtub and you can't tell a whole lot about them, but it has faucets everywhere. And I'm, t- I'm somewhere someone said that the, uh, cover was based off of the British pronunciation of faucet. And, and so that's where it, uh, kind of played as like a, a play on words of sorts. But the, um, this is a Mother Mary's, a, you know, from a song title, you would think, Oh, this is going to be a very nice, light, gentle song, but it has a really aggressive tone to it. And, um, they do something that I typically would associate with either deep purple, especially deep purple mark two. Um, or rainbow, very similar things where uh, you have an organ and uh, the guitar playing a line together, a somewhat a, a complex line. You know, Richie Blackmore and John Lord were pretty known for doing that. And he did it some with Rainbow later on, but uh, Shanker and and Raymond here both have several songs where the two uh, instruments play together. It's like they they go apart. And they come together for this line, and then the song goes on. And that has a lot of interest for me. One of the things about UFO, like you mentioned, was their album covers, especially during the Shanker era, too, as well. And again, a lot of that influence from Shanker rubbed off on the Scorpions, because you kind of look at the Scorpions covers that were, you, you kind of interpreted them differently than the person sitting next to you, or you kind of stopped and stared at what, what they were trying to say. They were they were like pieces of art 
basically, right? Because each person would have a different interpretation to that. And that was an always interesting thing, too, about UFO was, like I've stated before, about albums and vinyl. You'd study the album cover and you'd try to figure out what it was. You'd study the liner notes. And they were really big into that, um, which I appreciate more and more as I get older and how the how the artwork has evolved with the music, too, as well. Yeah, and hypnosis was uh, there was like a style that they would approach. They they put a lot of photographs into the album covers, but they also would kind of overlay other graphics with those photographs. And sometimes they were doing things that were kind of like tongue in cheek, or you'd have a, a, a pun that was visual in nature. Um, and and so that was definitely present uh, for a lot of their albums. Yeah, and as you go through the discography. I guess it's always hard to choose, you know, what you put in a set list a band has. But man, there's yeah. some songs as I listen to this. Like, man, and, and there's some stuff on the reissue too as well that has some different set lists on there. But I wish they would have done a couple other things too as well on this album. Yeah, do you have a particular favorites you'd like to have seen included? Sherry, I would love to have on on this album, which I thought was a great song. It it, it is on the reissue. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And so I, I too am glad that they had that that song included on there. Yeah, that's a great one. Um, uh, just another suicide is another is another good one too yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, that's a great song. I mean, just the riffs are incredible. There's so many that that I would love to see on there. But um, hey, like I said, you know, it's hard to choose a set list when you're putting right. together, you know, a tour here and. They definitely deliver with a lot of great songs too, as well, which is the next one is this kids, which I don't really appreciate or I don't really get into it on the studio album, but the live version of, of this song is just tremendous. Yeah. Another song off of force it. Um, what I really like about this particular song is that you have a lot of songs that where when people are trying to create more listener interest, like the lead will, either change key as I talked about before, or sometimes we'll go into a double time field. This one does the reverse where the, the Shanker's lead is actually in a half time kind of feel. And it, it kind of takes it um, to a more even pace and kind of a more somber setting. Um, and then it comes back up once the solo is over. Interesting. Yeah, no, this, this is when I talk in the beginning about the definition of the energy or define the energy that's on this album. This is a great example because for me, the studio album version does not come close to anywhere near the live version. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. Absolutely. The next song is love to love. And this is what I was talking about when I referenced the direct Iron Maiden influence, how the song starts out very slow and builds and builds and builds to this epic ending, this, this rock this kick-ass rock song at the end, it starts out as a ballad and then just goes into overdrive. And that's similar to a lot of songs, you know, from Iron Maiden, not necessarily ballads, but in terms of the arrangements that they had as a band throughout their, throughout their career as well. This is, this is my absolute favorite UFO song. Um, And this, this version is my favorite. The only knock I have on this version of the song is that it's not longer. I, that that solo I wish would go on forever. Um, this is the song that, and you're you're being very responsible, and you're checking your surroundings, and then that lead hits, 
and suddenly you're in a race with everybody else. They don't know they're racing you, but you're like, you're all going for it. Um, and this, this song just like makes you want to go twice the speed from when you started out listening to it. I love this song. <laughs> it definitely does, you know, hit, hit that spot, you know, for a lot of rock fans. The song is like three different songs in one. Yeah, it, it, it definitely, um, it has that, it feels like a real composition. And right. I think Shanker is right at the top of his game on this song. It's like, you think about a, a live moment where a guitarist is feeling it. And it's like the, the instrument has come alive in his or her hands. And you can almost picture the smoke rising from the fretboard. That is this song. It's an amazing tune. Amazing soul, like you said. Um, moving on to side three, it goes into Lights Out, which was probably my first introduction to UFO when I was growing up, because that was the song that was heavily played in Chicago radio. And this version was the one that was played a lot in Chicago. I think the other three were probably Only You Can Rock Me, um, Too Hot to Handle, Love to Love would, would be on too as well, as well as Dr. Doctor. But for the most part, Lights Out was the the big song. Uh, at least in this market here in Chicago. And man, listening to this again, as we were preparing for this, it really brought me back to being a young kid again and hearing this on the one speaker on my Panasonic, you know, cassette stereo and then upgrading to a Sanyo back in the day, you know, with my paper out money. And then of course the big one that I had with the Sony with the five disc changer, but hearing this song reminds me of just staring at the ceiling with my foot, you know, tapping and and just listening to this song because it meant a lot to my growth into my music journey yeah well it makes sense to me why they, it would be big in the chicago area because this is one of those great moments where you have crowd interaction of sorts where they change the lyric where in the studio version they're saying lights out of london and this one they change it to chicago and you hear the crowd yeah react yeah to that change so that that makes sense to me why it would be big there um, I, you know, I wrote down, I wrote down a few notes about each song on this one. I wrote down, this one feels like charging into battle. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. I mean, is this about, you know, the, the invasion in, 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 uh, in England during World War II? I don't know. That's a really good question. It very well could be. I mean, these guys are all of a, uh, post-war age. Um, they're, they're all like from like 48 to 55, I think is when they were born. So, but they certainly could have the influence from their parents that could, uh, could lead to that. Um, that's a really good question. I'd like yeah. to know the answer to that. That's something we got to research here as we, uh, after we finish, cause I'd like to know the answer to that because it sounds yeah. like it would be like you mentioned going to war lights out in London. Did they turn the lights off as? You know, the invasion happened and, and when, uh, you know, when, sh when planes would bomb the, you know, with England and the UK, what was that like? Yeah, that hadn't occurred to me. I want to know the answer too. We move on to rock bottom and this features just an epic version on this album of another one of their more popular songs. Probably not the level as the ones I mentioned, but certainly does have uh, a, a huge, contingency of, of ufo fans that love this song and it just features shanker just blazing on guitar just absolutely just killing it 
Yeah, this was off the first album that Shanker appeared on, Phenomenon. Um, and I think this is one of the great riffs in, in rock and roll, that, that intro riff. And actually, they, they do a, a pretty good job of getting the anticipation going with uh, Andy Parker hitting the hi-hat um, in the rhythm of the song. But when that when that riff comes in, it's the riff that sticks in my head the most. It's, it's like an earworm for me that for days, I'm going, because I heard it this morning, I, this is going to be in my head, um, especially if I don't have other music on. Fantastic song. I mean, just the just the playing by Shanker on this. Yeah. For for guitar players, this is a this is a song you gotta check out. This this has a great extended solo on it. If you don't play guitar, I think that it might want, make you want to start playing guitar. If you do play guitar, it makes you want to spend the next six hours trying to get the some sort of energy out of the instrument that that, that Shanker gets here. Fantastic. I mean, again, this ends side three. There's only two songs on side three because of the length of Rock Bottom. And it goes into side four on the original pressing with Too Hot to Handle, which was another big song for them, as big as it probably could have been for them. And again, this is one that people know, casual UFO fans certainly know this song. But this, you know, starts the charge, leads the way for side four to end the album. Yeah, and uh, this is off Lights Out. Uh, this was a, um, a Pete Way and Phil Mogg song. It wasn't a Shanker comp- composition. I was I was trying to decide if the song sounds a little different because it didn't have Shanker's influence in, in the writing of the song. Um, it, it it might it has like a um, a little more of an upbeat, uh, slightly less aggressive, if I dare say that than some of the other stuff. Um, so it's possible that if you want to go through and kind of piece out where each band member influenced the writing, you might be able to do that here. Yeah. One of the things about this band is it has three really big personalities uh, with Michael Shanker, Pete Way, and Phil Mogg. And when you read Pete Way's book, man, his life He's passed away now. He's you know he's no longer living, but similar to to Motley Crue, when you look at Motley Crue on stage, you say, "How are these four individuals still alive?" It's the same thing with Pete Way. Like, how how was how did that man last as long as he did with the amount of drugs and alcohol he put into his body? Yeah, <laughs> you know, I I feel bad that um, you know the original lineup for fast way was supposed to be pete way and fast eddie clark and then it was because of contractual issues that pete way wasn't able to to stay with them and record that debut album i feel sad about that because i fully think there could have been something magical there with having those two personalities involved absolutely i I agree 100 percent. i was going to mention it and i'm glad you did because as he parted ways with ufo as did Fast Eddie from Motorhead, they joined forces, or, well, originally joined forces to form this band Fast Way, which is regarded as part of the new wave of British heavy metal uh, movement. And they were never, I think, because of something Pete Way did, he was not able to get a visa or something similar to that. He was not able to travel or, uh, I'm trying to remember, did he do the album and wasn't able to do the tour? 
Um, I don't think he's credited on the album, which okay. I, that's what made me feel okay. sad about it. Uh, it does have a very young Dave King in a very different style from what he does now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the guy's voice is absolutely phenomenal. Um, yeah. But he, that was a great band. I mean, I remember some of those videos on MTV back in the early eighties when I was a young kid and seeing those Fastway videos and then hearing the history and yeah. always thinking that Pete way was the bass player. And then finding out years later that he never played on the album, he never toured with the album because of some issues with his visa, because he was in some sort of trouble, he couldn't make yeah. it to, to to the recording of it. But yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, when you mentioned Pete Way and you mentioned Michael Schenker, who's got a you know very large personality too as well. I had the pleasure of interviewing him uh, for the show on a previous episode, and uh, great interview, but very interesting perspective. And of course, Phil Mogg, who was able to stay with the band up until the very end, until they decided to stop touring, which was a couple yeah. of years ago. Yeah. Um, hopefully they do some shows or do reunite and do some other shows too as well. That'd be nice to see them again. But, you know, he has the lead singer ego too as well that is common in most rock bands. So having those three personalities, it's amazing that they were able to record as many of those albums as they did. That's true. They actually were pretty productive um, from this lineup, and this is my favorite UFO lineup um, of those five albums in about a four-year period of time, I think. Yeah. Yeah, because they really shifted from the first two albums prior to Shank, bass rock, to the uh, much more straight-ahead driving rock and roll sound that they had on those next five albums. Right. The next song is I'm a Loser. Real quick about Pete Way before I before I go into this, Pete Way, after the Fastway situation, he also formed another great band called Wasted, W-A-Y-S-T-E-D, which I think released a few albums. Uh, they were phenomenal. And I think they had a, a minor MTV hit or what you considered a minor MTV hit back in the day. But if you have a chance, I don't know if those albums have been reissued, but if you can find those Wasted albums... Uh, yeah. you're in for a real treat yeah all right to i'm a loser which is another song that really doesn't have that lift on the studio album but again this live album really does it justice with the energy yeah this is this to me this evokes a total um blue class blue, blue collar struggle uh type of 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 feeling to it and it starts off um, a little bit mellower, and then when it hits the chorus and it goes hard times, and the guitar is is just hitting the. It's not a note, but it's it's very actually reminds me of another song that that came up in a discussion this week on on Twitter um, on uh, Jethro Tull's Hymn Forty Three. There's a very similar chunka chunka feel of the guitar that they have on this, and that that hard times chorus really um, really pulls you in. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Again, the studio version, like a lot of this record, doesn't give the lift that it needs. But listening to this live version, it really um, it really takes off in terms of 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 enjoying the song and and having that energy, like I said. Yeah, this is this is definitely high up on my list of songs on this album. The next one is Let It Roll, another Shanker Mog song that uh, almost is at the end of. 
the album, another great version too as well. I'm glad they included it in the set list. Yeah, it's actually on the uh, on the version I list, listened to. They have this as the third song in. And so it's interesting. They moved it from almost the end to almost the beginning. Um, it's it's from uh, Force It as well. It uh, This has the, the interplay between the keyboard and the guitar that really makes me think of like the Purple Mark II or Rainbow. Um, and it has a very tasteful playing by Shanker on kind of the interlude section of it. I mean, he's, he's known for his, his flash, his uh, burning guitar style, but he's got a lot more touch to his playing in this song. I agree. Um, that's one of the things too about Shanker that does make him a little different than most guitar players is that he can shred, but he's also got a, a taste for the subtleties as well. Um, he can kind of interlude them or interplay them between each other, which is really unique in his style. Indeed. The album ends with Shoot, Shoot. A great way to end the album. Great way to end one of the most iconic live albums of the 70s. Uh, fantastic song. Great energy and great closer. Yeah, this was actually a song that was written by the entire band. You, you don't see Andy Parker getting a whole lot of writing credits, but he's got one on this one. Um, it's a good example of a key change in the song for the lead and has a really cool pre-chorus riff in it that really makes the song for me. Yeah, it's a great way to end. And, you know, one of the greatest live albums of the 70s, as we've mentioned, a great uh, for those collecting vinyl, those collecting live albums. If you don't have this, this is something that you have to have in your collection. We've just run down the original pressing, and now we're going to get into the reissues that Rob probably knows a lot more about than I do, but there's some <laughs> differences in the set list. There's a couple add-ins to in the songs, like the song Sherry that I mentioned earlier, so let's get to it. Yeah, the the, the version I listened to um, has some of the songs are similar in, in order, but there's a couple of switches, um, like I mentioned with Let It Roll is a pretty significant one. It starts off with Hot and Ready, which is off of Obsession, um, as, as a, a good rock and roll pull you in kind of song. And the, from what I understand from reading it, they were making an attempt with the reissues to, uh, more closely approximate the, the set list as they were playing them. The, the second song is Cherry, uh, about a rock and roll type of subject. I, I agree. I'm glad they stuck this on there because it, it's a shame to leave it off of the original release uh, great version on this it then goes let it roll love to love natural thing out in the street only you can rock me mother mary this kids doctor doctor i'm a loser lights out rock bottom too hot to handle and shoot shoot um, and then if you if you sprang for the uh eight disc lp version that was released in 2020 it had the original song listings for the first two discs that you described. And then each of the next, next six discs were individual shows. And I, I had to go to the internet for this because I haven't yet gotten myself to fork over the money. But uh, disc three, it says, was recorded at the uh, International Amphitheater in Chicago on October 13th of 78. Disc four was at the Kenosha Ice Center in Wisconsin on the, the next day, October 14th of 78. Uh, they followed it up 
they moved on to Youngstown, Ohio at the Tomorrow Club on October 15th. Then they, on the 16th, they played the Agora Theater in Cleveland. On the 17th, it was the Agora Ballroom in Columbus, Ohio. And they finished it off on the 18th with Disc 8 at the, at Louisville Gardens in Kentucky. And so I'm, I'm really, I'm, I've talked myself into the, buying this as we're sitting here talking. We're not going to tell my wife that, but um, I'm sure that I'm going to find the price to be a little bit steep. <laughs> well, it's four discs, or no, it's eight discs. Eight so, discs. man, that'll probably be, man, uh, yeah. it'll be like 120, 100, 120, 150 bucks. Well, the way vinyl is these days, it might be more than that. I don't know. Yeah. Plus, I'm going to have to figure out how to make it fit into my uh, record racks. <laughs> What's really cool about bands back then is how they changed up the set list back back in the day, right? I mean, because yeah. we just listed those shows that are on that deluxe edition. As you run through the set list on there, there's a lot of similarities. But there's also a few differences from each show, which is really cool. How many times have we seen a band and seen the set list and then know that they go play the same set list the next night, the next seven, eight nights, the whole tour. Right. So it's refreshing to see that. I don't know why bands don't break it up these days. I mean, I'm sure there's rehearsals, but, you know, I would like to see a little bit more improvisation uh, or improvising from night to night, add a couple different songs that, you know, maybe they're not playing every show. I think that would be make it more unique. But unfortunately, 90% of the bands don't do that. Yeah, and I, I think it's cool when they throw in a cover of something that you wouldn't necessarily expect and kind of make it their own. Um, you don't have any covers here on, on this, but somebody has gone in on Wikipedia with the um, the eight-disc version, and they've created like a matrix of how the set list uh, varied from night to night. So you can see how they changed up the order of things. Um, and it's pretty cool to go through the, the re-releases of those five Shanker albums that have the bonus tracks on them and hear how they played the same song a little differently. I really like that you get variation in that. And one thing you'll notice too, about the shows that are on the deluxe edition is like we talked about in the beginning where the Midwest, you have Chicago, you got Kenosha. Kenosha is basically, you know, 50 minutes to an hour outside of Chicago, Youngstown, Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio, Columbus, Ohio. Those are roughly, anywhere from five to six hours away from Chicago. Louisville, which is kind of like on the border of the Midwest and the South. A lot of people consider it the South, but it's not the deep South. But again, these are all mid Midwestern cities, Chicago being the biggest. And some of these are circuits or places where bands don't play anymore. You know, no one really plays Kenosha that much anymore. I don't know too many bands that play Youngstown. Obviously, Cleveland, Columbus, Louisville are still major players whenever bands do tour. But they were called circuits back then. Back then, And a band would go on this stuff and they would play, you know, amphitheaters. That, you know, when they were first starting out, they'd play high schools. I know my old high school, I think, had the police play there. had Kiss play there when they were first starting out. So it was a lot different vibe back in the day of how your tours would go if you were in a band. And this person, whoever broke it down with the Matrix, when you see all that, and going back to the early part of our conversation, with the Midwest being a huge part of UFO's success, it's no wonder they chose these areas, these towns, for the deluxe edition. 
I'm jealous of somebody that was living in Chicago and could go to shows in October of 78. This would have been a great show to have been in attendance. <laughs> How many people went to the Chicago show and then also drove up to Kenosha? Because literally Kenosha right. is right over the border in Wisconsin. That'd be very, that'd be cool. And, and, you know, the tickets back then were probably about 10, 15 bucks. If, if God, that's expensive. Uh, probably like eight, six or yeah. eight bucks back in the day, <laughs> yeah. you know, but that would be cool because if you were in Chicago, going to see the the International Amphitheater, and then you're going basically to Kenosha. That would be be like 45 minutes without traffic. Back in the day, though, you didn't have the highways, so you probably didn't have, you know, you probably had two-lane highways or four-lane highways, a lot different than it is now. It would probably take you a little longer. So basically a little, maybe like an hour 10, hour 20 to get up there. Yeah, you know, there's there are a lot of uh... – smaller bands these days that um, you can go and see them for a very reasonable price at, at local clubs and so forth. I was really happy to see that. Uh, let's see. What was I calling him? Chicago, Chris, the elder to distinguish him from your son. Um, he went to see Sasquatch the other night. That made me really happy because you can get in and you can see a great show for a really reasonable price. And, and, and you might be one of those people that one day go back, can point back to and said, I saw this band in that setting. And that's like a one-time opportunity. Um, the, when I'm, when we're talking about earlier, I said, I, there's been a, uh, a recent live album, uh, from this year that I think was released about two to three weeks ago. And the band, I know people are probably going to like go, what? When I say what the band's name is the band is CD Jesus, S E E D Y J E E Z U S. I think I'm spawning right. It is a, uh, an Australian band. And um, they just released a live album that they did after lockdown had finished in Australia. Uh, it's recorded in a small club setting. They have um, a couple of studio albums they've done prior to this. Um, the the guitarist and singer in the band is a very gracious guy. I've, I've spoken to him via email a couple of times when he was trying to get me some physical product. And uh, this live album is like has great sound. The band is clicking. It's a small audience, but you can hear the audience into it. And it just, it like nails the live rock and roll experience in a small club. So I, I very much recommend checking this live album out. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing we, we hit on a lot here on the Hook Rocks is for a lot of these emerging bands, for you to go see them yes, is, um, is well within your budget. I mean, shows are as low as sometimes 10 bucks. And probably the most I've played for or paid for a new band is probably 40, depending yeah. on the venue. But you could go see a great emerging rock band for a fraction, a, a tiny fraction of what they're charging for the stadium tour or what Springsteen's charging. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely a live atmosphere, seeing a band in a small club. I know, um, Chris um, from Chicago, USA, and Chris um, and Twitter went and saw Sasquatch at a club in the sh- in, sh- in the city called Reggie's, and I've been to Reggie's a few times, and it's probably a three hundred capacity, four hundred capacity setting. So that's a great place to see a show. Yeah, and one of the great things about going to those places is is that you almost always will encounter one of the band members working the merch table, yeah. and, and and almost without exception. Um, they're very willing to talk to you. They're always positive, upbeat. They're happy that you come out to see them play. 
it's it's been a really good experience being able to to meet them and talk to them and and, and see and connect with them on a one on one level. Getting back to UFO Strangers of the Night, what do you think the legacy of this album is? Well, I think that if we don't have this album, it's hard to see, especially seeing how much influence it had on a lot of the uh, major guitar players, especially in the mid to late 80s. Uh, I'm not sure that that you would have had the same level of devotion to the instrument that a lot of them seem to have. Uh, I, I think that it really help define what the guitar hero might be. Um, Shanker has that really distinctive flying V um, sound. I, I was reading that he liked to use a wah pedal, but he didn't rock the pedal. He would like leave it as kind of a filter for his sound to get the tone that he got. And it really um, did impact a significant number of people that later on became the guitar heroes of the 80s and then into the early 90s. I also think that any talk of its legacy should include the fact that without this album, is UFO regarded as one of the major influences of bands like Maiden and other bands like Metallica? Because this album meant so much to those bands. And of course, the studio albums are important. I don't want to say they're not, but I don't know any other band that when you talk about UFO within the first two sentences, this album is brought up, this live album. And and I don't know of another band that that happens to. Obviously, Kiss Alive had a huge impact. But, you know, Kiss is more known for the imagery and, you know, the, the album covers. I mean, you can make a case for Destroyer and you can make a case for Love Gun and some of the other stuff. And, of course, Alive is always in that conversation. But more so with UFO, KISS had huge success and KISS had sustaining success because after this album, UFO really doesn't have that sustainability afterwards. I mean, they've had they had some good songs and some good good albums, but without this album, I don't know how much UFO garners a conversation like this. I agree with you. I, I think especially in the in the US market. Yeah. Um, I, I think I think you're right that, that if this album hadn't happened, um the band probably would not be in the conversations that are had now. Um, right. and, and when you're talking about defining the live albums, the only other one that immediately comes to my mind where you you associate that live album with the reason that the band is known is the Allman Brothers at the Fillmore. Or even the one we just did, or did it did a few months ago, Humble Pie, rocking the Fillmore. That's true. That's true. Yeah. So yeah. where you you directly associate the band with that live album. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. You know, and how many of the guitar players that were influenced by Shanker, like Kirk Hammett, how many of them heard this album and then went backwards? into their discography you know without this album does that gateway to their music happen you know what i mean probably not i mean this this was my gateway to their music um i had not heard uh the studio albums prior to hearing strangers of the night i bought strangers of the night because of all the things that i was seeing um by guitar players and how influential it was and then i thought well maybe i better go see where all this material came from and so i went backwards as a result of that so you're absolutely right 
the difference is with Kiss Alive and Strangers of the Night. There's a lot of differences, or there's some differences and some similarities. The similarity is no album released by either band. You could even probably include Ben Lizzie in this too as well. Match that energy of the live show. I mentioned that in the beginning. The difference is, is that if you go back and listen to the Thin Lizzy albums, and if you go back and listen to the UFO albums, the production is good, right? It's not like the Kiss albums, the first three Kiss albums. The production yeah. is very thin, especially the Hotter Than Hell album, the mix on the Hotter yeah. Than Hell album. I, I don't know if they can ever fix that. I'd love for them to fix that because some of the stuff sounds very muddled and very suffocated. Yeah. So, yeah, when you think of those three bands who had a huge, or all three of them had huge album, live albums in the 70s, they all did what they needed to do, right? Create that energy, create that, that, um, that vibe for the band. But when you go back and listen to their studio albums, if you were to do that, their, their, the recordings are just not the same. Not yeah, the same. Yeah. And I think yeah. that, I think with this album, especially when you compare it to Kiss Alive, this is a truer live experience. True. I mean, Gene Simmons has come out over the last decade or so. And it said that they dubbed in the crowd. they, they re-recorded some of the parts on it. I'm sure that happened on UFO, but you know whether it was the you know they can't re-record the drums. But if they had to do some stuff with the vocals or whatever, I'm sure every live album has a little bit of cleanup to yeah. do. But in terms of what the album was, how it was recorded, to gain that experience, I don't think you can argue the fact that you are correct. Yeah. UFO has much more of a live, a real live experience. I think this one also wins for coolest album title. I agree too, because I'm trying to think, you know, everything that you, that comes before it really does have that live or that, that word in there, rock in the film more or whatever it was that, you know, it's a live album. Strangers of the Night really doesn't have any connotation to it being a live album. Yeah, I mean, it certainly evokes feelings of a chance meeting between people, and then they're gone. And, you know, this album came out, and there's this one um, um, lightning-in-a-bottle moment, and then Shanker's gone. And so I think that there's something, even though they may not have known that at the time, there's something really evocative about the album that, that speaks to to the moment in time that you're capturing. Any final thoughts before we wrap up? No, I think I'm going to go uh, see how much I can uh, have to spend to get the eight discs. <laughs> see, the, the only thing that I, I'm hearing from you is you may end up on Discogs. And anytime yeah. you end up on Discogs. <laughs> that's that's entirely possible. You, you, you walk away from the computer with a walk of shame with your head down like, I just spent way too much money. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think that... If sight is evil. Been, if if somebody has not listened to this album, um, number one, you should correct that. And number two, if you start listening to a song and you start thinking that you're knowing where the song is going to go and maybe you think, I'm not sure if I'm into this song, let the whole song develop because each one of them really is a journey that, like, with peaks and valleys along the way. And there's, there are enough changes in it that, um, you have to look at it as at the song as its entirety and not just how it sounds from the very beginning. 
Very good point. I 100% agree. Rob, it's been a joy as always. Always enjoy doing this with you. Can't wait till the next one. Me too, Jay. I can't wait to see what the audience decides. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for tuning in. I uh, appreciate everyone. And always, as I've mentioned, or I mentioned always, please uh, let us know what you think. Give us some feedback. Rate us on the streaming services that you listen to. Give us, you know, four or five stars, hopefully. Hope you enjoyed our conversation, our live album review conversation on UFO Strangers in the Night. Till next time, till next quarter, what will we talk about? Take care, everyone. We'll talk soon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.